Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Karen Weaver. We all have it. Whether we like the color red or blue or like a sports car over an SUV, we all have preferences. It's what makes us unique. But when we make decisions about situations and personnel that are based purely on our, our perception or our bias about what a woman should do or what a man should behave, we are treading into the turbulent waters of implicit bias. My guest today is an expert in how gendered implicit bias impacts college athletics and higher education. Tom Newkirk, an attorney from Des Moines, Iowa, has successfully tried and won numerous cases and settlements for coaches and others on the issue of bias. He is a national trainer providing workshops to a variety of audiences and teams. Tom joins us to have a very deep conversation about some of the cases he has worked on. Tom, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a few days now. Welcome to the podcast. I'm so glad that you're here. Well, welcome, Dr. Weaver. It's an honor to be here. You know, you you have a very interesting, a very unique law practice, but you also have a an interest in an area that we haven't heard talked a lot about in the in the relationship to Title IX. And as you'll tell us, it's not exactly related to Title IX, but the terms implicit bias are a real key indicator of how you practice law, how you defend equality. Tell us a little bit about what implicit bias is, just so that we have a basic understanding. Uh, Well, implicit bias is just a form of cognitive bias, and we all have cognitive biases that allow us to function in society. You know, the things that uh, make make our brains work at a subconscious level, and implicit biases are just this subconscious version. It's an, it's an association. We have lots of associations in our brains between things that we've learned over our, over our lives. I mean, for example, uh, when I say peanut butter, you may say jelly in your mind. Most people say jelly. And so we associate peanut butter and jelly together automatically, quickly. But when you as- associate things like uh, African-Americans and threat or crime, that's a negative association. Or we associate women and weakness or emotion that's a negative association. And so we have a lot of automatic associations in our minds for certain minority groups, certain protected classes, and also positive associations for other groups like people that look like me. I'm a white 50-year-old, 58-year-old heterosexual male. So I normally have mainly positive associations that would be associated with me. And so therefore, when you have negative and positive implicit biases that can cause people to make decisions that are negative or positive toward other groups. And this is part of our normal brain functioning and it's not entirely subconscious. It does affect our conscious behavior to a large extent as well. But, uh, you know, that's generally what implicit bias is and what I, what I mean by it. That makes sense. So we get these implicit biases almost from the day we're born, right? By our family structure and the town we live in, that type of thing, the, the media we consume, that type of thing. Absolutely. That's where it comes from and from our parents, et cetera. And you think to yourselves, and, and yes, absolutely, that's where it comes from. Yeah, it's it's one of those things that until you really think about how we all carry that ability to be, uh, we don't we're not consciously thinking about being racist or sexist or misogynistic, but we have those those characteristics inside of us because of situations that we've interpreted or seen other people interpret for us going forward. So you have focused this effort you said initially on African Americans. And, and now your practice has expanded also to include women's athletics. So tell us a little bit about the women's athletics side. 
Absolutely. So about 15 years ago, not quite 15 years ago, um, you know, I have been doing dealing with implicit bias, both for race and gender and all all aspects of society, age, etc. I wasn't focused on any one's group, but I represented a coach. Her name was Ruth Pro, along with my law partner. We took the case to trial. It was a retaliation case. But I noticed in this process that the this great woman, this great coach um, was getting complaints of about her behavior, that she was somehow mean or a bully. And it just didn't really make sense in the context of who she was and how she presented herself. And, and we, ultimately we proved at trial that it wasn't really true. And so it was coming from somewhere. So I began to think that, well, maybe implicit bias affects women in sports coaching just a little differently than maybe some other groups. And maybe there's an answer there, something that I can do to help those coaches. And then from there, it just kind of took off and it's been 15 years of kind of learning and understanding how bias affects the evaluation of a female in not only the sport context generally, but really in leadership roles. That's really what I focus on. Once a head coach step, once a person steps into a head coach role, that person, if, if she happens to be a woman, will have to take on certain characteristics that can make her um, unlikable or can cause people to differentially evaluate her behavior. And that's what we kind of focus on, on the, in the sports side of it. So uh, one of the things that, that I know from my research is that many, many, many young women athletes who are rising up through the college ranks have not had many women coaches in their youth, youth leagues. Mm -hmm. And so it can be different to see a woman acting in a powerful leadership role. Do you think that that fact that there aren't many women uh, coaching younger athletes plays a role in how college coaches are perceived? I think it has a little something to do with it. I, I think that there may be more female coaches coaching uh, younger kids than we think. It depends on the sport, of course. Depends on the sport. Uh, right. You know, maybe less in swimming and more in something else. But it's it's not so much. I think they haven't may have not have seen a woman in a leadership role. It may be something of it, but actually it goes deeper than that because you know we socialize. You know, we begin socializing our kids and each other to think of, you know the idea of a, of a leader is that person who looks, acts and speaks like me, who doesn't look, act and speak like you, Dr. Weaver, even though technically, objectively, we all think that Dr. Weaver is just as capable of being a leader and a strong leader as Tom Newkirk is, maybe more, pow more powerful of a leader, but we subconsciously just don't really believe it and don't accept it. And this is kind of built into our, our system. It's built into our kids and young athletes who come up and then they interact with a head coach and they're just thinking that, well, the female coach can be a good coach. There are times during the stress of, of Division One or Division Two athletics when they want that coach to turn more into a parent. They need the head coach to be more of a mom-like figure than they do to be an actual coach and leader, which of course she can't be because she's in a coaching job. You know, she can't be any more of a parent than I can be as a lawyer or you can be as an academic. You've got, we've got a job to do. So that's kind of where I think a lot, most of it comes from is the biased evaluation of a female acting in a leadership role. Of course, having an exposure to someone in a leadership role can help reduce those biases. You know, certainly what I'll call external group contact, intergroup contact can help reduce biases to some extent. And so therefore, if I'm around someone and see her as a leader, um, that's going to make it maybe slightly less likely that I would have that response. Um, and so that will, the thing you mentioned, will play a role to some extent. Yeah, we in, in the movies, on television, uh, post-game interviews after the Super Bowl. I mean, all we we a lot of what we see is white males leading teams, 
and it feels like they are held up as the most important kind of leader, the best leader. So in college athletics, we need a large group of folks to, to lead our teams. We need people who are of different races, different ethnicities, different genders. And yet when it comes to evaluation, it seems like they're all squeezed into this long, narrow model of how a leader should behave. So talk a little bit about how that happens when a coach is being evaluated. Sure. One of the, I think one of the more difficult things that to understand, uh, to get one's mind around, is that it's if a female is acting in the leadership role and there there are going to be biases that will uh exist to in some on the team in some parents in some administration it's not that every single human being who interacts with a woman who happens to be a head coach is going to have biases against her or negative impressions of her as a leader that's not the way it works but a good percentage of people or some percentage of people will okay so what will happen is is that when the female engages in normal, professional, acceptable, you know, even extraordinary coaching behavior, her behavior by some percentage of people will be interpreted as not as effective or negatively, or, or something about her will be interpreted differently than if a man was doing the same thing. And, and what happens is, is that, for example, you know, a simple example would be if a female happens to be raising her voice and speaking firmly to an athlete, she might be perceived as yelling or screaming, or it can even be interpreted as abusive what she's doing. Even if a man was doing it, it would not be interpreted in that way. And so the real challenge for administrations and universities, and why I greatly appreciate being on your, your podcast, is that is really getting their brains around how this works at a subconscious level. It just you convert the normal behavior of a coach through this filter of bias into something bad, into something called that we label as abuse or bullying, but objectively the female's not doing anything differently than what a man would do. One of the things you uh, wrote about in your uh, information sheet about implicit bias is you mm -hmm. talked about how the perception of the complaints of a male athlete versus a female athlete can be perceived differently by the administrator receiving mm -hmm. them. So talk a little bit about that. Sure. Uh, another, there's a lot of uh, what I'll call challenges to explain this concept because it's it's rife with risk. You know, when you talk about bias, everyone responds in kind of this defensive, polarized way, and no matter who you are, it becomes an issue. Well, the other aspect of this is not just gender bias toward the female coach, but there's but there's biases that exhibit themselves toward the male and female athletes, and there's also what I call gender socialization, which is a concept of how we socialize male and female athletes, young adults, we'll call them young adults, to report risk. So we, we socialize people to report risk slightly differently. So, and I can talk about that a little bit later, but the point is, is that there's a gender difference in how male and females may quote, I'm using air quotes, choose to report their risk. They're not feeling risk differently. They're not feeling necessarily more depressed. It's not that men don't feel depressed and women do. It's not that men don't feel tremendous fear and uncertainty, and women do. Men and women feel emotions very, very similar ways. But we socialize our young adults to report them differently. So a, so a coach of any team is going to receive different complaints, going to receive complaints differently because from men, young men and young women. But they're also going to perceive them differently. So therefore, if we're socializing our young adults to report risk differently, you're going to have A, female athletes who report risk, meaning emotional concerns or physical concerns to report them more often and with greater intensity and concern than a male athlete might report. So that's one. 
But because we socialize them to report that way, we also hear them differently. So therefore, when a female athlete comes to us and says, I'm feeling emotional harm, I'm feeling at risk, I'm hurt, we're going to respond to her in a more, in a different, often a patronizing way. Like we need to fix it for her, put our arm around her differently. If a male comes to us and he has similar concerns, which is going to happen less often because he's male and is socialized to report it slightly differently, we're going to then be more rejecting of his concerns. We're going to say, buck up, Jimmy, and oh, Sally is our gendered response. So there's gender from the athletes themselves in terms of how they complain, then they're reported, then there's gender and how we respond to it. And then there's the other layer of gender, which is how it's directed at our coach or their coach, whether the coach is male or female. And then, of course, there's a gender of administration in terms of how administration may choose to evaluate the female versus the male coach within this entire whirlwind of what I'll call two or three different layers of bias-driven evaluations. For years women's athletics had a female administrator that the coaches reported to. Now, mm -hmm. nowadays, last 20 years or so, they've been mixed. So sometimes you might report to a male administrator or some others a female. Does that matter in this calculus as well? It does matter. There is some, there's some slight differences in terms of if you have diversity of decision-making, Okay, in other words, if you have an all-male athletic department, that's not going to be a good thing. But if it's all white or all male, if you, have, you don't have enough diversity in your decision-making to really evaluate male and female athletes and coaches appropriately. But if you have a, so yes, diversity does matter. I think that a female decision-maker can be useful or helpful in responding to these complaints slightly in a slightly better way. But not necessarily, it's not a panacea, because remember, we have many female decision makers who engage in biased evaluations of their fellow females. For example, these are all female athletes who are complaining about a female coach, and many of their parents are female, and the female coach gets complaints, and often these coaches are investigated by other females who then engage in a biased evaluation of this female coach. Because remember, it's not just men who some who watch men's sports more than women's sports is not that's not it it's not just men who exhibit you know biased evaluations of women who don't quote believe in them as a leader and have these subconscious biases women hold it too but yes absolutely we need greater diversity in leadership we need greater gender diversity and across a host of uh, leadership aspects in college athletics to reduce the risk that biases can can take hold but we also need training and it, not just training we need in-depth education of these decision makers, male or female, of these various risks to eliminate them or reduce them. Yeah, I think that's a really important point. And we could probably expand it to, to, to race as well and, yes. and ethnic origin, because I, I worked uh, in one department where there were multiple sport administrators. And uh, it depended on which sport administrator you reported to as to what the outcome might be, because they each viewed the, the situation differently, whether it was men's team or women's team, or whether it was a a team that, uh, you know, play, was a big time revenue sport or not a big time revenue sport. All of those things seem to factor into it as well. So mm -hmm. I think the diversity of that middle management in a division one athletics program is a really important characteristic as well. Would you agree with that? I would. I think you need diversity. And you kind of talked about another aspect of this what I'll call the standardization of decision-making that doesn't really occur in athletics. You said that it depended on who was in charge and what, how they responded to it and what their feelings were. And, and that is a huge problem, Dr. Weaver, right now in coaching generally is that 
the administration, the athletic director, whoever it is, they will react to the coach based on their feelings in the moment. You know, they have policies, but they don't really follow them. There's not really any standardized coaching methodologies. There's no way that they can look at it and say, okay, here's how we're going to respond to coaches to ensure fairness. I want to pay this football coach all this money, and I want to pay this one nothing, or this one has a good record one day and a bad record the next day. There's really no rhyme or reason to how they make decision-making within athletic departments, at least in a way that can, it's far more wild west than anybody wants to admit, I think. And and when you have kind of this wild west subjective decision-making process going on, it is rife for all kinds of biases and race and gender, like you said, and also general unfairness and inequality across a host of, uh, of, of such uh, um, characteristics. You mentioned another group that plays an outsized role, depending again on their, the vocalness of them, but it's the parents. And it's the bias that the parents bring to the table about how their son or daughter should be treated, how they've been treated in the past, coming into a new situation, how reactive the institution should be to their son or daughter's concerns. How do you address that? That's a really tough nut. Well, the thing is, universities need to get one of the reasons why I always encourage universities to educate themselves on the role of bias is that it can, it can give them power to fight back. Okay. You see, I, if they can say to a parent or an athlete who's complaining or to a lawyer who's writing a letter on behalf of a parent for some crazy reason, if they can say to them, look, we can't just react here because we have biases we have to manage. We have to treat people equally. We can't respond to this complaint. We have to have you follow protocols. We have to follow protocols, et cetera, so that they can actually make the process more consistent. I mean, that's just one thing I hope that universities will will get their brain around is that understanding how bias works will benefit them as well. And I would also say that, you know, that one of the problems universities face is they they treat these quasi-adults more like children than adults. That's their, one of their big problems. They, they, uh, I appreciate why they do it, but at the end of the day, these are 18 to 22 year old adults who can do whatever they want to do. They can have sex, they can use drugs if it's legal, they can go to war and die. They can do all kinds of things. Yep. They can vote for whoever they want. They can do, generally they can, they can do all sorts of things that adults can do. And if you remove them from the college um, schema, if you put them out into the, the working world, they would be expected to follow procedures like every single other 18 to 22 year old adult within that within that employer. We have to follow protocol. We don't get our parents to call the CEO of the company we work for, but only at a college we do that. Mm-hmm. It makes no sense. And, and what happens is that universities who enable this process, they're the ones who respond to them. And part of the reason they're responding to them this way is because they are, you know, they're, they're treating them and thinking of them like children as opposed to saying, no, we need to think of you like adults. And one of the big conflicts going on, I think, for coaching generally as a profession, and I respect coaching as a profession. I've learned a lot representing not only female coaches, but just seeing coaching, how it works, how it develops young young adults to being more mature, to being really, really solid people. Coaching as a a profession is being undermined by this process Mm -hmm. because when you get a young athlete who's in college, they're actually expected and held accountable within a coaching system a little more effectively than they are generally within the college system. And therefore that kind of conflicts sometimes when what they really, you know, with their more selfish selves, if I can say, I I think you understand what I mean, but it's, but that's one of the, 
the so yes we need to get our brains around how to handle treat these individuals as true adults they're immature adults that's true but they are adults <laughs> and so holding them accountable for following policy and protocol and tr being trained and learning just like we do with an employee is incredibly important yeah and, and you know i've worked on enough campuses to know that sometimes the uh the revenue athletes get a little bit more support and and uh, uh rope to hang themselves than the non-revenue athletes because the non-revenue athletes are viewed as expendable but the revenue athletes are treated uh as well we can't afford to lose him we've got a big day on big game on saturday you know that type of thing yeah i would say you know one thing about uh just to show how gender is so infused within our system it it is true that when and a lot of female coaches i think kind of pick up on this though they don't really say it other than maybe in private <laughs> privacy of their their home or their friends is that young female athletes are kind of viewed as more expendable and therefore female coaches are viewed as more expendable because at the end of the day i think athletic directors largely think subconsciously that well my job depends on football and basketball and i'll maybe female basketball maybe occasionally another sport that happens to be female that is but primarily the female sports are there because they're required to be there through Title IX. I don't really value those sports as a competitive program. Yeah. So in other words, and I don't, I don't really need them to win a national championship. I don't mind it if they do. I don't mind it if they do. And, and that's a good thing, but I'm really, really not that concerned about it or really that excited about it if you do. And I see this happen, I, you know, we helped a number of Hall of Fame coaches and coaches have won national championships and done extraordinarily well. And they all, many of them talk about how administration just didn't really seem to be that excited about it. Because yeah. at the end of the yeah. day, they're like, well, you know, it's nice to have you here, but at the end of the day, what I want, what I really want are female sports who are efficient. The young athletes are kind of quiet. They're keep quiet. So they're not keeping too much trouble <laughs> and that you can, you're cost effective. So that I can spend most of my money over on these sports, which I think matter more. And at the end of the day, you're women and you really, really want to win anyway. I mean, I know that I don't, and remember when I say things like this, Dr. Weaver, I'm reflecting a subconscious perception, an implicit bias driven view. I'm not sitting around suggesting in any way, shape, or form that elect directors have a meeting saying, we can give a crap about female athletes. It's not <laughs> right. what they're saying. Right. They're right, saying right. to themselves. I'm sure right. they can say, Newkirk, you're crazy. I do not say that. I never would say that. And I would say, you're right. You don't say it. Right. But you may think it more than you believe. You do. And this devaluation of women as a, women in sport and athletics generally, and as women, it infuses itself and it bleeds through many athletic departments in a host of ways. And so, again, that's why I always say that the, the progress of women has been, and we can talk about this in a second, I want to interrupt your topic, Dr. Weaver, but anyway, that's my view on it. Yeah, it's good. No, it's great. And, and it leads me to a, a last question, which, which, you know, we could spend another podcast on, but, you know, you talk about athletic directors and their values, their values are dictated by their presidents. Generally, the presidents will say, I'm hiring somebody who can help me win football, get into the NCAA tournament, build a new stadium. And oftentimes those folks are generally assumed to be males who can do that the best. Mm -hmm. So women, We've only had in the last few years, five women ADs in the power five. Mm -hmm. uh, so we don't get many women who get a shot to do those kinds of things. So how can presidents overcome their implicit bias in making decisions like this? It's, it's extraordinarily difficult at that level because number one, 
even if you hire a female to begin athletic director in a school where where sport really really matters in other words you you think i you know i'm using air quotes again on audio <laughs> recording you think that um you, you need this you need this sport to win okay but you need but it's really difficult because if a female happens to become an athletic director she's going to be held to a double standard herself so therefore if it succeeds it's normally going to the benefit or the credit for that will be assigned likely to the male coach of the program mm -hmm. if it fails it will fall on her shoulders subconsciously because she's a female in a leadership role she's the president or in this case the athletic director she was given a chance to run the show if it works out she's not really touted as a genius she's touted as someone who happened to be there when it worked out but if it doesn't work out she's going to be blamed for it and so it's really difficult to in my opinion the way to deal with all of this whether it's athletic directors at the top and promoting more of them or whether it's the complaints at the bottom and what's what's destroying female coaches and destroying coaching generally those complaints are what is destroying it it's all driven by various forms of implicit gender bias that are clearly understandable you can you can uh, the science supports that this bias exists and the way to solve the problem is to create an acknowledgement that bias exists in the subconscious way it is real it is prevalent and it requires methodologies to protect against it my analogy i use when i do trainings and education on bias is this and bias is kind of like bacteria you know bacteria is invisible you know, we don't really, we can't really see it. Not all bacteria is harmful. I mean, we need bacteria to survive. We need viruses to survive. If we wanted to eliminate bacteria or viruses tomorrow, we, we first of all, we couldn't do it, but we shouldn't do it because we would die. Our human, our bodies could not exist without those things. The biases are the same way. In other words, we need cognitive biases to exist and survive and to, and to function our mental functioning but certain types of bias certain types of biases are harmful like implicit biases but like bacteria what do we do we have protocols we have you know sterilization protocols in hospitals we have hand washing protocols we cover our mouths for covid we have those little pump stations of soap in our various educational institutions etc we can wash our hands quickly we have protocols in place to deal with this invisible bacteria because we acknowledge it no one needs to be an expert in it to understand that but we just generally know it exists and we take responsible steps to stop it right. that's what we need to be in terms of dealing with implicit bias and i would say to all groups you know like you mentioned it earlier i focus on gender for this podcast in particular because of what you've asked me to do right. and when i do training i do a lot of focus on gender and race i'm not forgetting any group i'm not forgetting persons who have Asian descent or Native American descent or, or individuals who are LGBTQ, forgetting anybody else who may also have biases that affect them. But you've got to be efficient when you're dealing with a systemic problem like this. And so by focusing, for example, on dealing with implicit gender bias in athletics, which is a very serious problem, if you create protocols to fix that from the bottom up, it will not only help all women across all sources, including academics, by the way, but it will also help all of the groups. Because like, for example, if I go into a hospital and say, here's your hand washing protocol for bacteria, guess what? All forms of bacteria will be affected by it, not just one form, but I may only try and make them deal with meningococcal bacteria because it kills people. You know, maybe I said, let's focus on that kind. But the point is you've got to think about it like this thing that you can't stop it through various little training mechanisms. You've got to have a you've got to have a an approach to deal with a systemic problem, and that uh, that's what I encourage universities to do because it can be done. 
and it can be done sooner than we think if we work collectively to make it happen. Yeah, it's such an important topic, Tom. I'm so glad that you, you've spent a few minutes with us talking about it because I think that every time uh, women move up the ladder, it gets harder and harder to think about how can I advance other women? It takes the really special leader to be able to think about it neutrally versus gendered. And I, I appreciate you pointing out the, the, the challenges that we face, but it's also opportunities. So Tom, mm -hmm. thank you Absolutely. so much for joining the podcast. I really appreciate it. No, thank you very much, Dr. Weaver. For, it's an honor to talk to you and I'm glad to talk about this topic anytime. Excellent. Thank you.